chapter 11, verse 2, and we're going to read to verse 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rachel. We're starting this new section of uh, 1 Corinthians this morning. If you, if you haven't been with us before, um, we've been working our way through this, this pretty long book um, of the Bible, which is this letter to this ancient church. And in this next section that we start today, Paul is he, he's starting to talk about uh, and give some instructions to the Corinthians uh, how they should be when they get together for worship, much like we're doing this morning. This is the next few chapters are going to be how we should behave or, or how things should be when we come together as a church family to worship God. And so he, this is why we've called this section the church gathered. That's what we, we talk about in village. We talk about the church scattered, which is when we're not together like this. Uh, when we're, we're in, our, in our lives, we're still part of the church, but we are the church in a different form. And when we come together, we are the church gathered. And so Paul, uh, over the next few chapters, he addresses stuff like communion or the Lord's Supper. We call it communion most often. Uh, he talks about prayer and prophecy. He talks about spiritual gifts. In today's section, he's talking about this really kind of weird thing. It's weird for us um, about, about head coverings. And I guess it's weird for us because... We, that's not really a common practice for us. Um, but what we're going to see is that the, the point is that it's really about worshipping God in the way that he has created us to be, right? And, and, and that's kind of our first clue as to what's going on here. But, but I want to, before I, I get into it, I want to just recognize that, firstly, this is widely regarded by theologians and scholars as one of, if not the most complex uh, passage in the entire New Testament. Um, there's a lot of language and context stuff going on, um, and honestly, it's one of the most controversial and, uh, in, our, in our culture, controversial, and, and one of the most abused passages in the whole Bible. Um, and so it's, it's pretty difficult, and lucky for you, you're stuck with me. <laughs> um, but hopefully, we know that God is with us when we're reading this. And I just also want to mention, 
a couple of things. When, when you hear Rachel reading that passage, or when you read this yourself, you have uh, initial reactions and responses to that, and that's fine and good, and, and that's what we all do when we listen to music or watch a film or, or anything. We, 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 we experience the world and we respond and react to that. But I just want to mention three things. Firstly, that the Bible, the Bible is meant to confront us because it's God's word, and God is God and we are not, and so um, it's always going to confront us, and for some people it will confront us and challenge us in different places in our lives, and, and for other people it will be different things. And if it didn't confront us, it wouldn't be God's word uh, because he is God and we are not. And secondly, we read the Bible in our culture, in our context, Belfast 2020. Uh, and, and so there are certain things that are offensive or, or controversial for us that the other people in other times and other places in the world wouldn't necessarily find as confrontational. So, for example, maybe if you live in a Middle Eastern context where um, the, the culture is based on honor and shame, you might find Jesus teaching on loving your enemies way more controversial and, and offensive than, than what Paul is writing here in, in 1 Corinthians. So we need to be aware of our context as well and our culture. And thirdly then, when we read, when we read any part of the Bible, um, we tend to focus, because we are us and we're sinful, we tend to focus on, on ourselves and our own feelings and our own reactions, but, but let, let's try to remember that this and every page and every line of the Bible is not about us. It's about Jesus. And, and every, every line and every word is about the depths of his amazing love for us and his grace to us. And we know that, as we just sang, that, that God is our good, good father and he only has good things for us, right? And so I want... I want to and I want us together to approach this humbly and worshipfully uh, and with a desire really to see God glorified and that Jesus to be, to be worshipped. Sound good? Also, I want to add one more thing. This may be slightly longer than we normally go. <laughs> Rachel's buckled in for it. Just because it is complex and we're all going to have to do a bit of work, um, um, but bear with us and I think that we're going to see this as good news for us. So I want to pray for us. Um, I've set it up. It sounds like it's awful. It's not. It's really good news. Um, it's really, really good news, and we're hopefully going to see that this morning. So let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll start into our text. Father, we want to thank you that you are God and we are not. We want to thank you that you gave us your word, um, which is living and active, and you speak to us continually right now through it. Uh, give us ears to hear our Father's voice. Um, let us be children who listen to our Father. And and Lord, would, would we be changed and challenged and changed more to be like Jesus because of what we hear and learn this morning? In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen. Amen. So I want to start by asking you a bit of a weird question. Uh, how many, show of hands, how many people own a pair of jeans? Show of hands. Uh, okay, I'm pretty sure that's everybody in the room, right? Uh, but it didn't start out that way. Like Jeans are now this staple of everybody wears them. They have this. I'm really nervous because Ruth's in the room and I'm like, I'm just talking about clothes and fashion. But jeans were invented in 1873 by, uh, what's the name, Jacob Davis and Levi Strauss. And they were invented to be hard-wearing work trousers, hard-wearing work clothes. They were not a fashion thing at all. And at the time, uh, fashion was more about, uh, you know, ladies in, in nice dresses and, and men in, in nice tails uh, and top hats and all that kind of stuff. It, it wasn't the culture to wear jeans. And now it is a culture that everybody wears jeans all the time, men and women. And, and, 
and, and my point is that culture changes, right? Culture is fickle. So something that means one thing, uh, that symbolizes one thing one day, might symbolize something different in another day. Um, so think of, I was trying to think of things, I was thinking of like tattoos, for example, which, which really started off as symbolizing uh, a, a, a warrior and uh, something to decorate yourself as a warrior and all that kind of stuff, or maybe to do with grieving dead people or, or grieving your, the death of your tribe or whatever. Now it's a way of expressing yourself. It's a form of, of personal expression. It's a form of, of, of uh, it's actually a fashion thing, really, isn't it? And our passage today is dealing with one of a, a cultural issue in some ways. So, not many, I mean, not many women in here are, have their head covered. And, and of course you don't, because we, that's not like the, our culture. Women don't cover their heads in our, in our culture. But they did in ancient Corinth. So what we want to do in a, in a, when we come to a passage like this is we, we, we have to ask ourselves, how do we know when something is, is, is cultural that we don't have to take on board? And how do we know when something is an eternal truth, because it's in the Bible, that we do have to take on board, right? Well, firstly, I want to ask the question, what have head coverings got to do with, with gathering to worship God? Now, remember, this, this part of this, this book is, is, is about when the church gathers to worship God. So what have head coverings got to do with that? And as we move through the passage, this is what we're going to see, and... and uh, uh, bear this in mind as we go through. When we come to worship, when we come together to worship, we honor God and each other by accepting and outwardly expressing that God has made us in His image as male and female. When we come together to worship, we honor God and each other by accepting and outwardly expressing that God has made us in His image as male and female. Okay. So Paul has been instructing their Corinthians uh, up to this point about life outside the, the worship gathering, outside the gathered church, and now he turns his attention to what happens within uh, when we do gather to worship. And in this passage, it's particularly to do with this idea of, of, of prayer and prophesying, that we see that in verses 4 and 5 and later on in verse 13. And in verse 2, Paul start, starts by saying, hey, when you guys are doing this stuff, when you guys are praying and prophesying, you're doing a pretty good job. You do a really, really good job. I commend you. And in particular, he's commended them for the fact that, that the women of the church are getting involved in the praying and prophesying. And that wasn't common in the ancient world at all. The Jewish women, they had to sit behind a screen or, or, or maybe even sit in another room during the worship gathering. And in Greek culture, women were not regarded as equal at all. They, they, they didn't have any, any voice, as it were. And Paul is pleased that when the Christian church gets together, that the women are participating in the, in the worship gathering because in Jesus, everyone's equal, right? Men and women, we're, whatever race you are, whatever gender you are, whatever sex you are, we're, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. And so Paul is pleased with this. But he says, yeah, I commend you that you're, you're, you're doing things the way I've taught you to, but there's maybe one thing I want you to th think about. There's one thing that they need to address, really. You see... They're living in the freedom that is theirs in Christ, and they're worshiping in the freedom that they have in Christ. But like we've seen over the past few weeks, our freedom in Christ doesn't mean that we just do whatever we want to do. And here it seems that, their freedom, the freedom, that in their freedom they were doing something that was blurring the lines between men and women, that was blurring the gender lines in the worship gallery, and Paul wants to warn them not to do that. 
Because really, being, being both male and female, that's a mouthful, being both male and female, and relating to each other in that way is an important aspect of being made in God's image. And that's our first lesson this morning. The first part of this we want to look at is the distinctions of male and female reflect the nature of God. And we see this in verse 3. So listen to what he says in verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of, every, of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So how many people just tensed up a wee bit when I read that? So let's have a closer look at it and see how this is good news for us. Because it, it's God's word, it is good news for us. And this verse is kind of key to understanding the whole passage because, in, and we're going to spend the most time in verse 3, because in this passage Paul lays out that eternal principle that then in the rest of the passage he applies to their cultural situation. And the principle that he sets out here is essentially that in our femaleness and in our maleness we represent the nature of God. We, represent, we are made in the image of God. This goes back to the way, to the creation of human beings. God has created us in his image as both male and female. And this is what we see back in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. In Genesis 1.27 it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And that means, yes, individually we carry the image of God, but in a fuller sense we make up God's image as male and female, as men and women. And there's something fundamental to our gender differences that makes us like God. And in verse 3, Paul gives us this insight into what that is. What is this fundamental thing that makes us like God? Well, Paul says that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of her wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, when we read this, what do we do? We tend to just go like, oh, this is some kind of chain of a command. And in our heads, we read that, we see that as God, Christ, man, woman. But that's not what Paul has said at all. He hasn't said that. Man and woman are both between Christ in the way, God or, in the way Paul orders it. He says, Christ, man, woman, Christ. That's what he's saying. And he does this to show that neither of the sexes are, are, are further away or closer to God. And so he's talking, about, he's talking about these specific circumstances, the life within the church gathering, and, 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 and in the marriage. He's not speaking about the relationship between every man and every woman in the world. He's these specific circumstances. And what he's saying is, well, there are differences between male and female in the way that we're created. I mean, obviously... <laughs> Look, look, you know, look, look at us. We look different. And within that, within creation, there is an order. And this is something that is called headship. This is something that we see uh, right throughout the Bible. And, we, and when we look at this idea of headship right throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, and regardless of how it has been abused, it's not something just to do with husbands and wives. And it's not just about authority. As we look through biblical history, and if somebody wants to nerd out with me and do some, you know, we can do that um, at some point. But basically what we see throughout biblical history is that headship has three parts to it. Authority, responsibility, and sacrifice. And unfortunately, what tends to have happened over the centuries because of sin is that the responsibility and the sacrifice get 
forgotten about. And this has been used to just impose totalitarian authority on, on people, especially women. And so you have abusive elders in churches who, who just impose their will on, on people just because they want to, without caring for them, without taking responsibility, or without sacrificing themselves. Or, or you have... You have abusive husbands telling their wives what to do without sacrificing themselves for them or without taking responsibility for their families. But that's not the headship that we see as we're made in the image of God. And it's not what we see throughout the Bible. And what we need to remember is that the, head, in the, the headship model we see in the Bible, and especially in Jesus, the head has responsibility for and is self-sacrificial for the ones they have authority over. And so his headship, as intended by God, is about far more than just authority, although it does include that too. But the basics are there's a head, and there is submission to the head. And that's basically how headship works. And, there's head, and just as there is headship in creation, there's headship in marriage. And, and that's because we are made in the image of God. And headship exists in God. God is Trinity, right? Hopefully, if you've all heard of this with Christians, hopefully, if you haven't, let me explain it briefly. God is one, but he is three persons in one, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We sang about it earlier. And, and, and essentially, God is three persons, equal in essence and worth, but different in role and function. What does that mean? That means that basically they're all the same, but they do different things. He is the same, but they do different things, okay? And in their sameness, the Father is the one from whom all things are made, and the Son is the one by whom all things are made. And likewise, the Father is the one who sends the Son to earth to save his people, and the Son who is the one who is sent and willingly goes to earth to die and save his people. And this is how human beings are made in the image of God, as male and female, in church and in marriage. And so, as we follow Jesus, we want to model it's men and women, the biblical principle of headship, and in a way that reflects the nature of God, and a way that is modeled to us by Jesus. And this means that Christ is the model for men, and Christ is the model for women. Because Christ is both head and the one in submission to headship. He is the head of his church. Colossians 1, 18 tells us that Christ is the head of his body, which is the church. But also he submits the headship of the Father in the, night, in, the, in the garden the night before he died. He had his own preference. He said, God, I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not, your, not my will, but your will be done. He submits the will of his Father, knowing his Father's will is, is good and loving. And guess what? Christ, in both those roles, Christ as the head of his church, led him to self-sacrifice and death on a cross. And Christ, in submission to the headship of the Father, leads him to what? Self-sacrifice and death and laying down his life and dying on a cross. And that means that as both men and women living in our God-imaging distinctions, we're called to self-sacrifice and laying down our lives for the good of others. We represent the image of God in our differences, male and female. And we're called to follow Christ as husbands in headship, just like Christ by laying down our lives, and as wives in submission, just, just like Christ by laying down our lives. And we follow Jesus regardless of how he has created us. Now, at this point, what I want to do is 
I'm going to bring Leanne up to speak into this. Leanne is someone uh, who's got insight in this because she studied this for a number of years, and, and I want to hear her uh, teaching this verse and, and some of her insights. So, Leanne, I'm going to hand over to you, and I think, yeah, there you go. So, let's hear what Leanne has to say. Got my head covered for the occasion. <laughs> when you said that, I was like looking around the room to see, does anyone else have a hat on? No, it's just me. Do I take it off? Tim. Mutual submission. Um, I shouldn't joke, sorry. Um, Okay, so let's read the verse again. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. As a woman, it is impossible for me to not look at this passage from a female perspective. And in church, I think that we tend to forget this position. Um, We all speak as sex beings male and female. So take time to remember that as our starting point. You speak as a sexed being. So at best, you only ever make up 50% of the equation. As male and female, we have a lot of value to bring to these discussions. Sometimes one voice can be louder than the other. The church hasn't always done a great job of presenting this. And in my experience, women can sometimes feel that their voice is unimportant, forgotten, um, maybe even sometimes just ignored. I hope that hasn't been your experience as a woman. As the writer Dorothy Sayers says, uh, when she's talking about gender issues and women's roles within society, men are human, women are almost human. This can be a stance that some churches consciously or not reflect in their treatment of women. Women are not other, we are equal, and we are different. When we talk about gender roles in church, when this discussion comes up, what we usually mean are women's roles. Men's roles are never really defined within our church culture. Um, They're never explicitly challenged. But here in verse 3, the script is is suddenly flipped. We just have to be willing to dig a little bit deeper than our usual surface level offences to see it. As men and women, we are both called to Christ in the same way. Elders already set this out. We are called to Christ in the same way. Yet our different genders, and within that our roles, do look slightly different. And I understand that when we talk about gender roles, that in itself is a whole other discussion that we don't have time to get into right now. But for the sake of time... I'm going to make an assumption, um, and you can tell me if I'm wrong after. Um, Let's assume that men and women are the same but different. We are both human. We are both valuable. We are both intelligent beings. Our bodies are physically different, and within that, the capabilities of what those bodies can do is different. Physiologically, we can be different as well. So for me, these differences take center stage in verse 3 of the passage, When we hear headship, women can recoil at the emotion and the past experiences that it stirs up. Unwieldy men lording their authority and their privilege over women in the workplace, in the society or in the home. This is what headship um, draws to the forefront of my mind. Perhaps it's yours as well. Headship as a concept can feel like giving way to the denigration of womankind. But when the Bible talks about the head of the wife as her husband in verse 3, this, we have to remember, is reflecting our perfect position, our ideal position. 
before headship was a twisted, abused, and sometimes painful representation of how women have been trodden over for centuries, when male and female pre-fall worked in a beautiful synchronicity. Women need advocates, and here men receive, particularly husbands, so listen up, receive a big call to action if you listen closely for it. Husbands in the room, I speak directly to you, or those soon to be, if you want to be the head of your wife, be her advocate. What do I mean by an advocate? Well, a simple definition is someone who supports and pleads for, defends if needed. Headship here is not over the woman. Headship is over the world for the woman, just as Christ gave himself up for the church. Go back to Genesis verse 1, 26, um, and you'll see that God gives Adam dominion over the world, not over the woman. She was taken from his side, not from under his heel, not from above his head. She was taken from his side, neither above or below, but side by side to him, as his equal. If every wife had a husband, <laughs> if every wife had a husband that truly was her advocate, that stood up against injustice or sexism when they saw it, that spoke for their wife when she wasn't able to speak for herself, that was her physical strength when her body wasn't strong enough, that pursued her to be more Christ-like, that used their male privilege as a tool for inclusion rather than segregation or restriction. If every wife had a husband like that, then headship suddenly becomes a pleasing concept to submit to, a safe, loving, affirming place where a woman's flourishing is not only important, but essential to a husband becoming more Christ-like. Marriage represents a coming together of two people as equals, different parts that fit together perfectly with God at the center. And while this is first and foremost a call to husbands to pursue the spiritual growth of their wives, let's not be mistaken into thinking that this is where this stops. You don't need to be married to have a woman in your life that you could love better. And don't hear me wrong when I say that, that every man has headship over every woman because that is not the case, but the principle rings true. If you're sitting here, an un, if you're sitting here a married man or an unmarried man, you are still a part of this church family. But unmarried man, I, men, I speak to you directly. You are a brother to the sisters in this room. The sin that we see in sexism, the sin that we see in abuse, the sin that we see in the marginalization of women is not really about our position on gender or even this idea of headship. Those sins are from our failure to take God's commandment seriously, that we should love our neighbor. Thanks, Leanne. Uh, Leanne's, been, Leanne's been studying this stuff for a number of years and, and she's really insightful voice on it. And um, Yeah, it's, that's really challenging, right? Um, for men and for women. Um, and before we move on to the rest of the passage uh, uh, to see how Paul applies that principle, I just want to speak a little second, for a little second about the abuse of this principle. I don't know if there's many other principles in the Bible, many other uh, things that, in the way that we're created that have been abused as much as this. And, and verses like 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 make us nervous and they rightly should because it's verses like this that have led to men domineering and abusing women for centuries. And the principle of headship has been twisted and distorted and led churches to, 
to treat women like second-class citizens and abuse them. And I want to make it absolutely clear that, that sexism and misogyny and any kind of, 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 of gender abuse is, is utterly wrong because it's, it's, actually a, it's actually against the very nature of God. And if you are being abused that way as a woman, you need to let us know so we can help you out of that situation and so we can, as Leanne said, be an advocate for you in that. Um, headship is part of God's good design. As Leanne rightly said, it's something that, that was before the fall. It was something before uh, we fell and rejected God. But, but sin has caused men to, to abuse that uh, by willing this authority instead of laying down their, their rights and, and laying down their lives in self-sacrifice and taking responsibility. And as a result... Women have been abused and oppressed. Women have been told to stay in abusive marriages, which is just wrong and not whatever God says to do. And within the church, women haven't been given the chance to flourish. And to be honest, when men abuse headship and when elders abuse headship and when husbands abuse headship, men don't flourish either, as Leanne said. And so we also need to remember one thing, that because of sin and the fall, we are rebellious in our nature. And so we, we, we tend to reject any kind of authority. We tend to reject any kind of headship, no matter how Christ-like it is. Um, but what we need to remember is that God's order of creation was before the fall. It's not a result of the fall. And therefore, it's a, it's a gospel thing, right? We need to not reject it. We need to live in the redemption that Jesus has won of that, Right? And so that's what I hope we can do as we, as we live self-sacrificial lives for one another in the way God has created to, that we reflect the very nature of God. We are sinners and we will sin and we'll mess this up, but when we do, we come to Jesus and we ask for forgiveness and we receive the grace and mercy that, that he endlessly gives to us and then we go on living in the power of his spirit. So that's verse three. <laughs> verse four, another half an hour. Um, no, like I said, this, this verse 3 lays out that, 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 that principle. And now I want to see how, how Paul applies that specifically to the church gathering. Um, this is one passage, and, and we're, we're touching the surface of this, this principle and, and this uh, biblical theological issue. Um, and there are other passages that speak into other aspects and how that works out. And so we're not covering this. We could spend a whole day doing this. But what we want to do is teach from this passage today. This is where we are, and we believe this is what the Holy Spirit has for us today. So let's look and see why this idea is so important in worship. And that's our second point. In worship, we accept and express the distinctions of male and female. Now, it's important. This is really important because we're made as male and female in the image of God. And so we should reflect that in all areas of life, and in particular here as Paul is talking about the gathered church. And what seems to be happening is that the gender lines were being blurred. And, and, and the, by, specifically, by the way, the Corinthians were dressing and the way they wore their hair. Now remember, it's not that the women were praying or prophesying or participating in the church gathering that he has issue with here. It's the way that they are presenting themselves when they do that. That's really key. He's pleased with the fact that the women are participating in that way. So this is what he says. He says in verses 4 to 6, he says, Every man who prays or prophecies um, with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophecies 
with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her, her, cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So what's going on here? Well, let me set the scene a wee bit, because in the ancient, in the ancient Greek world, both men and women dressed very, very similarly. They, there wasn't much that distinguished between men and women in the way they dressed. So you can imagine it's, it's robes and togas and all that kind of thing. But, but there were a couple of ways that men and women differentiated between each other in the way they dressed. And that was to do with the length of hair and whether or not you covered your head. So typically, men had short hair and didn't cover their heads. And women had long hair. And married women had their long hair tied up and would have been covered with a, with a veil. Kind of like a handkerchief that didn't cover her face but, but covered her, her head. And these are things that in that culture differentiated between male and female. And Paul says, listen, I'm just reminding you that gender difference is a good thing because it actually represents the very image of God. This is how you've been created to be. Now, there are certain things in that culture that would also bring dishonor on men and women and would blur the lines between men and women. And these are the things that Paul says are to be avoided. So firstly, if a man had long hair in that culture, that was kind of a sign of femininity. Now, obviously, it's fine if in our culture it doesn't mean femininity at all. You know, um, I wish I could have long hair. I genuinely do. Sometimes when I have dreams, I dream of doing this with my hair. Um, there you go. But in that culture, it was dishonorable because that's what Paul's speaking against in verse 14. Also, in some of the pagan rituals, the men would, would pull their togas up, pull their, their hoods up over their head to, to, in their pagan idol worship. And that would be, again, uh, not just idolatry, but blurring those gender lines because only women covered their head. Again, why Paul speaks against it in verse 4. And for women then, firstly, having short hair or a shaved head in that culture, I'm not saying in our culture at all, in that culture is that it was a sign of dishonor because women would have their hair cut short if they were in a lesbian relationship. Or women, if women who were found guilty of adultery would, would have their, their head shaved as a mark of shame. And the only women who wore their long hair down and uncovered were these high society mistresses essentially call girls, and, 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 and the pagan temple prostitutes, where, where men would go to abuse and have sex with these women as a form of pagan worship. And they were the only women who wore their long hair uncovered. And so to, 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 wore your, to wear your hair down as a woman was a, and uncovered was a symbol that, that, you were, that she had no regard for her marriage or maybe that she was available. And so Paul is saying, men... Don't have long hair or cover your heads in worship because in our culture, those are signs that, that you're blurring the gender lines and that dishonors the image of God. And women, don't have your head uncovered because that's blurring the gender lines and that dishonors the way God has made you. And don't, don't wear your hair down because that sh shows that you don't respect your marriage. And so you're actually disrespecting the gospel of Jesus because we know that the gospel of Jesus is a symbol of, of, of that marriage is a symbol of the gospel of Jesus. So in other words... When you get together for worship, don't do anything that blurs the distinctions between male and female. Instead, celebrate these things. And if you're married, don't do anything that would dishonor your marriage or make people think that you're not married because that's dishonoring to the gospel of Jesus. And Paul doesn't want them to be under any confusion whatsoever. And so he lays out the reasons why these things are really important. So Leanne's already talked us through verse 3 and, and, and how... Uh, um, Gender distinction and marriage rules relate to the image of God. And in verse 7 to 9, he goes back to this creation thing. Let's have a look. Verses 7 to 9, he says, For a, for a man, 
ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Now, I want to be clear. Paul does not say that woman is not made in the image of God. If he had meant that, he would have said, man is the image and glory of, glory of God, woman is the image and glory of man. But he didn't say that, did he? His point is about glory, not image. He just assumes that we know that women are also made in the image of God. So how does Paul say woman is the glory of man? Well, she is his glory because she was taken out of him and because she was made for him. He was the firstborn. He's like the big brother of creation, if you like with all the responsibilities that that entailed. And she was made from bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. That's an ancient way of saying that she was made from the same of his same, from the stuff of my stuff. She is made. That's what, that's what Adam declares. I always think about that when he saw Eve walking along for the first time. He's like, what on earth is this? Anyway, that's a different conversation. But, uh, but, but he declares, look, this is the same as my same. This is me. All these animals are not me, but this is me. And when he said, when Paul says then in verse 11, and this is the other thing we need to be careful about, when a woman was made for man, he does not mean that women are made as playthings for men. He does not mean that they are made as domestic slaves or just mothers to children. The word, in, and I'll tell you why, because the word in our Bible that says for, that word in Greek, dia, Davey will correct me if I'm wrong, means on account of. Woman was, a, was made on account of man. She was made because God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. Woman was made by God on account of the insufficiency of man. <laughs> the, the, the insufficiency of man to, to, to bear the image of God and to spread his glory across the world. And woman is made because man is insufficient on his own to do that. And so together... Men and women are given this task. So I want to be really clear that Paul is not saying that woman is, is crea- women is created on account of man, not for the use of man. And just like Leanne said, that beautiful image that she gave us of man that was taken from the woman was taken from the man's side, created from his rib, a, a place of equality and partnership. And then I love this because Paul says, he's obviously thinking, well, just in case any of you lads, I know what you're like. You Corinthians, you're always trying to, you're always trying to, you know, puff yourselves up. Just in case any of you lads start getting any ideas about lording it over the women. First of all, he told you it's a good thing that the women are praying and prophesying, so listen to them. And then he also says, he brings them back down to earth with this other reality in verses 11 and 12. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord." Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. So you see, there's no sense in which men are better than women. Because the truth is that neither are independent of each other. They need each other. In creation, woman came from man. But ever since then, literally every man that has ever been born has come from woman. Men and women are both a gift from God to each other. And so we set about our God-given task of spreading his glory across the world. We do that with interdependence that Paul talks about, in right relation to one another, in the way that Leanne called us to earlier. And this is why the distinction between men and women is important, because God needs women and he needs men, and he needs us both equally. And when we gather to worship, we're getting this glimpse into the eternal reality that we will, we will live in forever. 
when we will gather together every tribe, every tongue, every nation, if I can add every gender, both genders will join and worship in God forever. And the angels are witnesses to our worship. This is why Paul brings in the angels. He's like, do this on account of the angels. The angels join with us in our worship. It's like they're observing us. It's like they're worshiping with us. And because of this heavenly audience, we need to take care to model the image of God well and to honor him well. And so Paul says, when you gather for worship, remember that you're made in the image of God, so don't blur those gender distinctions. And if you're married, remember what your marriage stands for. Your marriage is a picture of the Christian gospel. Your marriage is a picture of how Christ loves the church. So, so don't behave like you're not married. And remember that together, men and women join with angels as we worship God. So what does all this mean for us then? Well, this is our final point. When we accept and express the differences between men and women in worship, we honor God and each other. This is all designed so that we can honor each other and in doing so, so that we can honor God. So you might be sitting there thinking, well, he's just said that we need to do all this stuff, so why don't we practice women's head coverings in our church? Well, when Paul is talking about the length of someone's hair or talking about having their head covered, he talks about those things in terms of as what is proper. You see that in verse 13. He says, judge for yourselves, is it proper? And, and, and he talks about it in terms of normal practice. So does not nature, that's, when he's talking about nature there, he's talking about, you know, at that time, the natural order of things that, hey, in those days, men had short hair, women had long hair, that kind of thing. And, and what were customs for men and women at that time, he says, this is, we have, you know, we, we, we do this across all the churches, And none of these verses about head covering our hair speak of the timeless truth that that transcends culture. And when he does talk about the timeless truth that transcends culture, he's talking about how God has made, made men and women to be as they are in his image. So the thing that this teaching, the thing that is permanent in this teaching is that God made man and woman in his image. And, and, And their difference as men and women reflects his image. So the length of your hair or whether or not you pray and prophecy with your head covered or uncovered, that becomes a cultural decision that each church in each context has to make based on the principle of honoring God and loving each other. So if a church is in a culture where it would be seen as disrespectful to your husband and to God for a married woman not to cover her head, then she should cover her head in worship. And I just want to say, if you read this passage and it is your conviction that women should cover their head, then you should feel free in our church to do that. Um, we have missionary friends in Turkey. They're American, um, David and Monica. And in their church in Turkey, um, they, they, the, the women do cover their heads. And so uh, Monica, as an American woman, she covers her head in worship. Now, when they go back to America to visit friends and family, she doesn't do that in church. But in that culture, that is appropriate. That's a way of loving her neighbor well. Same for us here in our culture. The length of your hair or having your head covered or uncovered has nothing to do with your commitment to God and has nothing to do with your faithfulness in marriage. So we don't need to be concerned with that um, as much. But what we absolutely do need to be concerned about is that we don't dress or present ourselves or relate to one another in ways that, that, that demean or diminish or blur those gender lines. Or maybe suggest that we're involved in some kind of sexual misconduct. Or, or that if we're married, 
we need to be careful that we're not sending signals that we're not married or, or that our marriage doesn't mean anything. In short, we need to relate to each other as men and women in ways that honor God and each other. So we don't dress in revealing clothing when we come together and worship God. We, and if you're married, you, I mean, I was trying to think of like, um, the culturally equivalent things. And, and maybe I don't, you know, take off my wedding ring and put it in my pocket, you know, when I come to worship. I don't disrespect my marriage that way. And maybe we don't, maybe if we're, we're, actually I would say this in Galleron as well, maybe if we're married or single, we're not going around flirting with each other all the time, you know? Claire Smith, who's an Australian author and theologian and teacher, she says this way, she, I think this is spot on. She says, I'm not sure in our culture, and Australia yeah, it's different, but it's pretty similar to our Western culture. She says this, I'm not sure in our culture that we have a single piece of clothing that functions as a cultural equivalent to the first century head covering, a garment that indicates I am a woman, I am happy to be a woman, and I accept God's order of relationships between men and women. But there are things people do, both in terms of dress and behavior, to deliberately blur the differences between men and women. And at heart, that's what Paul is concerned with here. He wants men to be men and women to be women. And let's be careful, because when I say we want men to be men, I don't expect us all to be going in for macho stuff and going to the woods and killing bears or whatever. You know, we're not, that's not what we're talking about here. And whatever the, I'm going to avoid whatever the you know, stereotype for women be because I offend people, but it's not gender stereotypes. It's biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. And that's really it, isn't it? Because if we're only concerned with the the symbols that this passage talks about, we're going to miss the point that the real point is how we conduct ourselves. This is a remember, this is one letter. And yeah, he shifted focus slightly, but he's just come off the back of this whole piece about laying down our rights for the good of each other, laying down our preferences. And this is what we're called to, that, that, that we conduct ourselves with respect for each other, that we conduct ourselves with honor for one another. As Leanne said, that, that we are brothers and sisters. How we relate to one another is, is, more to do, is more than just what we look like and what we wear. It's about what we say and what we do and how we think. Guys, you know how you look at the women in this room, right? Specifically, what we're called to is honoring each other as men and women. And when we do that, we honor God. In the same way as last week we saw, as we, as we love our neighbor, that glorifies God. And Paul's saying, listen, when you relate to each other properly as men and women, you're actually reflecting that you're made in God's image and you're bringing honor to God. And when you respect your marriage, then what you're doing is you're actually highlighting, you're teaching the church what marriage represents. And it's this beautiful thing because it represents the gospel of Jesus. And so that's how we get to our, our lesson today. When we come together to worship, we honor God and each other by accepting and expressing that God has made us in his image as male and female. And ultimately, this is about living and worshiping in a way that God has created us to be. It's about how we represent God, and, and it's, it's also because of that, how we represent the gospel and how we believe the gospel and how we teach the gospel to each other and how we celebrate the gospel. Because like I said at the start, 
every page and every line of this book of Scripture is about one person. It's about Jesus. Even this stuff that we're like, man, that's weird or that's difficult or that's, that makes me cringe or I want to reject that. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. In submission to the Father, Jesus said, not my will but yours be done. And he gave himself up to die on a cross in our place. And as the head of his church, he, he took responsibility. He advocates for us. He advocates for us still. As, as James reminded us earlier, he intercedes for us still. And he sacrificed himself. He took responsibility for our sin. And he gave himself up to die in our place on the cross. So can I encourage us as we, uh, as we think about this and as we get in our missional communities this week and discuss this and as we try to live this out and as we get all annoyed and then try and submit to Jesus, what that looks like. Well, let's, let's try to stop focusing on ourselves and let's look up and see Jesus hanging on the cross, right? Beaten, bruised, pierced with, with nails and a spear and with thorns. Not for his sake, but for our sake. Not because he needed to die, but because we needed him to die. And that's what headship and submission really looks like. And like Hebrews 12 tells us, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and so we run with endurance this race that is set before us. That's the call that's on all of us today, male and female. We celebrate that, and we accept that God has made us in the way he has made us, and in doing so, we live sacrificial lives in the way that Jesus has shown us. And so we thank God for what he's done through Jesus. And we look to him, look to Jesus as our example. And listen, like I said earlier, when we mess up, and we will mess up, and I've messed up, and you've messed up, and we've all messed up in this, what do we do? We come back to him again, and we receive his grace, and, and we receive the forgiveness that's eternally and continually given to us through the victory that he won on the cross. And then we through the power of his spirit, go back out and strive to live well and to live as the image of God as men and women. And when we live in a way that honors God, in the image of God, this not only reflects the gospel, it not only gives glory to God, but it gives honor to each other, which is the most pleasing thing for our Father. He wants his children, us, to love each other well. So I'm praying that we can do that um, through the strength of the Holy Spirit at work in us. So let me pray for us.